We're going to continue in our series on the kingdom of God. So turn with me to Luke 15. We have a three-verse message today. Three verses. That's all we're going to look at in Luke 15. Luke 15, 8 through 10, the parable of the lost coin. So, so far, we've talked about a couple things. We've only been in one chapter. And like I said, I've said every week, we're going to run this series, The Kingdom of God, all the way up to Easter, where we, uh, where we arrive at uh, the relationship between, between uh, Jesus and Zacchaeus and how that happens right before the Easter Holy Week happens. And, and so it's all about the kingdom of God. And Luke, uh, these are considered the kingdom of God parables. The kingdom of God parables. And this morning, I... When you're dealing with three verses, and, it, and seriously, it's three verses that look a lot like last week's verses. Last week was a parable of the lost sheep. You, it's the same message. In fact, last week I told you that these three parables that exist in Luke 15 have the same theme. They say the same thing. They have the same kind of purpose, and they have unity, but they, they come from a different approach or a different perspective or a different view in, and Luke is writing... Um, in a way for us to all capture what Jesus is trying to say here. And so this particular parable is really easy to understand. It's, it's just straightforward. Jesus lays it out in a very clear and concise way. And in preparing for that, I felt some pressure on what, what do you exactly talk about that you don't already know? And as I was praying through the scriptures and just thinking about it and thinking about what, what's, what, what's good for us, I kept, I kept running across this idea that last week we talked about the mission of the disciple. The mission of the disciple, if you remember, do you guys remember? The mission of the disciple is that we should approach people the way that Jesus approached people. That he would meet and eat and, and spend time with the tax collectors and the sinners and the, and the people that the, the society thought were the least, that they were ugly. And the second part of the mission of the disciple is to love them and then to draw them into a relationship with God. Well, what's the next step of that? What, is the, what do we do after that? And that's where I, it kind of hit me. In our denomination, the Christian Missionary Alliance, we have a core value. The number one, we have seven of them actually, but the first one is lost people matter to God and he wants them found. And that phrase kept landing in my, in my head all week long. Lost people matter to God. Lost people matter to God. And it's kind of one of those weird things that when we talk in church or we come to church and we start talking about lost people, we have a built-in, church people have a built-in understanding of what that means. We, we operate in, with these presuppositions and these understandings and these phraseologies that we use. Lost people matter to God. He wants them found. And it was, it was, I was even, I even asked Adriana a little bit last time, I'm like, do I want to say the word lost people? Because what if there's somebody that doesn't know Jesus that comes to our church? And I was wrestling with that idea that like, we're going to call you out as lost people. Well, why not? Lost people matter to God, so that means they need to matter to me. And he wants them found, so I should be seeking after them. And then... So I'm giving you kind of a, a synopsis of my thought process. Why does this not happen all the time? Why do we not pursue this activity all the time? Why are we not regularly, consistently, actively looking for people to introduce them to Jesus? And the truth is, 
actually just heard Kaya say it out in the lobby, is monkey suits. We put on this display, this, this, um, this costume, this thing we, we present in a certain way and live in a certain way and do church in a certain way and act a certain way that we don't actually fulfill the mission and purpose and vision of the church or of Jesus as he's trying to install it to his disciples. We actually begin to take it and live it out in this other way and do our own thing. I had the greatest compliment that I've ever received in my entire life happened to me this morning. You don't look like a pastor. Brilliant. It's true. Thank you, Jinx. I love that, that you said that to me. And I, I usually wear my hat, and I usually take it off, right? But what happens when you don't look like the thing that everybody expects you to look like? You get access. You get opportunity. You get the ability to speak in a place, in an environment, in a, in, a, in a way that you're not allowed to because of your monkey suit. Jesus was repulsive to the Pharisees. What if he would have come like a traditional rabbi? What if he would have come like a traditional Pharisee? Would he have went after the people he went after? No, he would have felt the pressure. And I'm, I'm, I know we're making some conjecture and some like fantasy land stuff, but he didn't come that way. He came as a humble servant. He, he came to a bad location of Nazareth, Bethlehem and then of Nazareth. He came out of, he did all of this stuff so that he could relate and talk to the people, the least of these, the ones in which are lost. He had access. Access in a way that the guy wearing the monkey suit doesn't always get. Now, sure, this is my own monkey suit, right? So I might lose access with Fortune 500 company people. The point is, is when we remove the costume, when we remove the mask, when we remove all of that installed behavior that we act of act out as the church we begin to get access and opportunity and the ability to speak truth life and as we will unpack a little bit here in a minute the good news to people so father in heaven we come before you looking at the scriptures three verses to help maybe inspire us to walk like you walked, to talk like you talked, to love like you loved. So Jesus, I pray that during this time together as, as we have this strange one-way conversation, that you fill our hearts with your word so that we are encouraged. We love you, Lord. In your son's name, amen. Well, let me read the parable to you. Luke 15. This is a continuation of the lost sheep, picking up at verse 8. So he tells the story of the lost sheep. And then he finishes that up and says, or it could look like this. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls... Together, her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, 
For I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Lost people matter to God. He wants them found. That's the big idea. That's what I want you to walk away with. I didn't write it. I didn't come up with it. It's our denomination. Lost people matter to God. He wants them found. It's a foundational belief that we have as a church and as a denomination that we are excited and we are motivated and we have a purpose when we step out of the church building or when we step into the church building for that matter. We have an expectation that people will come to us. That lost people matter and we need to introduce them or run them into or through our own lives and activity and words, show them who Jesus is. So let's take this parable and look at it just a little bit and try to, try to break it down. It's very simple. We have three activities that she does. What does she do? She lights the lamp, she sweeps the floor, and she searches diligently. She lights the lamp. She exposes the household with purpose. Typical homes in the state didn't have windows, so in the sunniest of days, it was still dark in the house. Most people didn't hang out during the day in their home, and when it got dark outside, they just went to bed. So when you lose something in your house, not like our houses, but it's completely dark, the first thing you need to do is expose the darkness. In our basement, I have a constant fight with my two redheaded minions of turning these lights off. It is a nightmare down there. It's like they need every single light on in the basement in order to function as I want to say something really mean about them. In order to function as just humans, like they have every light on, bathroom light, hallway light on, two hallway lights on, both of the bedroom lights on, the two basement lights. I mean, it's ridiculous. I tell them every single night, every night, boys, turn the lights off every single night. It's like they can't walk down the stairs without turning the lights on. And I don't understand it because, listen, we do not live in anything... That was close. I saw it. You almost dropped your phone. Your Bible, I mean. You almost dropped your Bible. (laughs) We don't live in a massive home. You could fall down the stairs, five stairs, by the way, and land in one of the bedrooms. Literally, it would be faster to fall down the stairs and land in one of your bedrooms than it would be to turn all the lights on, walk down the stairs, and then go into your bedroom, which the light's been on for, since we've moved in. It is ridiculous. But here's the deal. When you're a kid, and I did this as a kid, you're kind of nervous of the dark, aren't you? You're a little nervous. The dark's kind of scary. When I would come home as a 13-year-old boy, and my parents would be out doing whatever they did at night when I was 13, which is weird. I don't even know. I'm thinking about what... I'm like hypervigilant with these guys with what's going on. But I would go home and I would check behind the shower curtains. Anybody do that? They would go through the house, open a shower curtain, look to make sure there isn't somebody in the shower. Like before you go to the bathroom, like you're dying to go to the bathroom, you step in and like, is there anybody in here? What happens if you find that person? Problems, right? But that's the deal. As kids, you do that. And you, and you make sure the house is lit up because you're nervous. And it's a behavior that we continue to have. But 
to make the to make the jump to a spiritual application, the light is supposed to push out the dark. Jesus is the light of the world. He came to be the light of men. He came to show light into the darkness, to create a path for us to walk on. Thy word is a what to my feet? A light, a lamp. It's, it, gives a, it, it opens up. So the first thing you do when you lose something is you turn the lights on because you have to go find it. right? So if you are really passionate passionate about finding the lost people that matter to God and you want to introduce them to Jesus, you have to push out the darkness. The light matters. Jesus is the light of the world. He is is interrupting this darkness that we live in. I get excited about all kinds of stuff, but I get excited about the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God arrives and it tr- starts to transform. And one of the things that it does is it, it lights up. Like if this, if this church coupled with every other church in town were to live out passionately a Jesus-centered, gospel-centered life, what sort of transformational activity would happen around us? People's lives would get right. The, the ugly things of this world would be pushed out. The light of the world interrupts. The dark places. What else does she do? She sweeps. She, I mean, how many of us need to, I mean, our kitchen needs to be swept really bad. It's really easy in your own home. And we talked about, I talked about this even maybe once already. In your own home, you get used to it, right? You're used to kind of the dirt. You kind of walk past it. You create paths to walk through, like laundry paths, to meander through. Wait, that's not an experience everybody else has. <laughs> and you, but you have, like, you get used to it. And she sweeps. She takes care of all the clutter. She takes care of all the things that could distract her from actually really focusing on the prize. She removes all the barriers so that she can seek and look in the corners of the room. It's exposed by the light. It's re- and she begins to just... Anybody watching that Netflix show where that lady comes in, the Spark Joy show, and she smells the T-shirts and folds them and says, this, this shirt doesn't bring me joy. Like, it's kind of funny. And then you feel guilty because you're like, I have piles and piles and piles of shirts that I can't even fit in my dressers. I should throw this stuff out. None of this sparks joy. It's a little funny. And it, I mean, it's created all an internet sensation, right? People are freaking out about it, and they're like saying, applying it to other things. This church doesn't spark joy, so I'm going to throw it out. This bill doesn't spark joy, so I'm going to get rid of it. And the thing, the thing that's really fascinating, though, is, is our stuff, our stuff distracts us in a lot of ways. And I'm not going to go into a whole diatribe on that. But what it does is it, it hinders us. And so it's really compelling to me that this, this woman, when she's looking for the precious thing, the thing that she lost, she removes everything to try to find it. Make a spiritual application again to that. What sort of things do we need to remove from our life in order to seek out people who don't know Jesus? 
What sort of schedule conflicts do you have to where you're not available to interrupt somebody else and say, hey, I want to be a friend to you. Remember last week? I want to introduce myself and say, how are you doing? And I want to develop that relationship so that those barriers aren't there so you can actually begin to talk to somebody about Jesus. But our schedules are so plumb full with stuff and life and things and and dust that it's hard for us to focus. I'm not even talking about the sin that hinders us, like the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12.1, to tear off all the sin that hinders you, that, that prevents you from pursuing Jesus. I'm talking about just the life that like gets in our way. Well, she sweeps out this room. She declutters it so she can focus and look for what the prize is. And the last thing, she looks diligently. She explores like crazy. Now, this wasn't a massive house. This wasn't a 2,500-square-foot home. This was probably a one-room home. And she looks diligently. And Luke really works hard to make us remember that, and, and to add that into the story, she looked diligently. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He didn't come. He could have come and just stood in the temple, which he does a couple of times, and just that's where he stayed. And he just preached in the temple and said, you come hear me, you come hear me. No, but he seeks out the lost. He goes after the people. He's demonstrating that this is what it looks like to diligently seek after the thing that you've lost. And souls matter to God. That's the parable. We can make lots of spiritual application from that. And you guys know your own kind of heart or where you are. What do I need to sweep out of my life? What sort of sin is, is causing me not to be able to step forward and to introduce Jesus to somebody? Am I really looking for people? There's lots of, lots of rabbit holes we can go down there. But I want to I now just focus in on one, one idea. We need to be a gospel-centered household and a gospel-centered church. A gospel-centered house where the good news, Jesus is at the forefront, says things like, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation. See, many of us, when we hear the word gospel, we view it as a doorway into salvation. We open up the door, and we step in, and we're saved. And then we stop. We just stop. I know Jesus. I'm saved. The gospel is the good news for salvation, and for life. Turn with me to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, picking up with verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, 
as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The gospel is not an arrival point. It's an entry point into kingdom life. The gospel-centered household is bearing fruit and increasing in faith. Bearing fruit and increasing in faith. What does bearing fruit look like in the household of God? What is bearing fruit? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What does that look like if it's applied to your life? What does it look like to be more loving? What does it look like to have more self-control? What does it look like to have more kindness, to be more peaceful, to be more gracious? What does that look like? The gospel-centered household reflects that to the world. To where people look at you and they go, you are weird. You don't match this world. You are different. You are There's something that's strange about you because the world doesn't like the good news. The dark places repel it and push it and try to fight against it. Satan is at war against us. He wants to seek and destroy you. He wants to kill your family. He wants to hurt you. He wants to drive a wedge in your relationships. He wants to pull you so far away from the kingdom life that you get distracted. Distracted with good things. Distracted with right things. Distracted with things that you believe in, but distracted nonetheless. Nonetheless, so you can't be focused on the kingdom of God, which is increasing in fruit in your life and increasing in goodness on the earth. You are transformative if you're a vessel for Jesus Christ. You change the people around you. You get to introduce them and run them into the name of Jesus Christ day after day after day. That's what the gospel-centered house looks like. Now, what does the gospel-centered church look like? It looks like a bunch of those homes added to the same building doing the exact same thing. Do you guys like Care Bears? Who remembers the Care Bears? When they would fight the biggest enemy, one person couldn't do it alone, could they? They stood in a big line and they yelled, care, bear, stare! And they fired from their chest these like bolts of color and light, right? But that's what the gospel-centered church does. It's a massive care, bear, stare firing at the earth. It is true. You guys giggle about it, but that's the first thing I thought of is when we stand up and we're like, oh, it's better than the Avengers because we have to like link arms together and nobody has like a unique ability because we all fire from the same place, right? So we all have these gifts, but the gifts operated alone do nothing for the kingdom. But when we link arms and care bear stare outward, it changes, it transforms, it multiplies the kingdom over and over and over again. Plus, it's fun to say care bear stare. Remember the day. <laughs> We're going to get t-shirts. The Christ-centered church, gospel-centered church, lives out day after day the transformative work of the Holy Spirit. See, we as a church family understanding what Jesus was doing through this parable, saying that when you know something is lost, you should go to the ends of the earth to find it. Light up the dark. Sweep out the junk. Search diligently. Light up the dark. 
Sweep out the junk. Search diligently. The church doing that together is incredible. Mark 1, 14 and 15 says this. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of application, I think, that we could have for this. And I want you to have a few words in your mind. Are we creating environments here at our church, as a gospel-centered church, for people to freely experience the good news of Jesus Christ? It's not my job to win the souls of the people who come into the building. I get to encourage a room full of Christ-centered people to go win souls for Jesus, and we get to do it together. Hear me, it's not my job to win the people that come into this building. Now, I'm wearing my monkey suit to have access to Casper. If you're wearing a Carhartt shirt right now, stand up. Look, our shirts are almost all similar. All right, thanks, guys. Joe said this morning to me, your beard makes you approachable. I'm lazy. I don't like to shave. To have a beautiful manicured beard like Chris is hard. But are we approachable in a way that we're no matter who walks through this building as a gospel-centered church, we have an environment where we are reflecting the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that we have to think about on a regular basis. We have to think about it in all kinds of things, in all kinds of ways. Is it easy for people to understand where to go in this place? If you show up for Sunday school, where do you go? I don't know where you go. You just wander the hallways until you find enough noise to be like, I might belong there. That's a criticism. Just want to make it clear, I'm criticizing us. Our kids taken care of here. We love kids. If you're a kid in this room, stand up. There's a lot more than two redheads in the front row, or one redhead. You, there's a pile of kids in here. Are we taking care of our kids? All right, you can sit down, kids. Are we thinking about them? So if you walk in as a church, into this church as a family, do you know where to go if you have kids? Right now, I didn't even announce that we didn't have children's church. You guys just know it. That means I wasn't even communicating the expectation that there could be somebody that walked into this church that has kids. Do you see how simple it is to kind of get lost in our own behavior, in our own clutter, in our own mess, that we forget to turn the light on or put up a sign that says where Sunday school is, and we forget to clutter, clean out the clutter or like make an announcement that there's no kids ministry this morning, or we, we look for people in the hallways? That's the issue. A Christ-centered, gospel-centered house is thinking about other people other than ourselves. Sure, we have to jump through a handful of hoops every single Sunday morning. we got to put the music together. we got to do this. i got to prep a message. we got to print out some things. we got to do some activities. We've got to prepare, right? But that should never trump 
never trump our vision for our core value that lost people matter to God and he wants them found. That should never drive our activity as a church. What should drive our activity as a church is that we're looking for people so that we can run them into the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they can open the door to salvation, they can step in and live a Christ-centered, gospel-centered life. Amen on that? That's what we want to be as a church. That's what a gospel-centered church looks like. It's, it has all kinds of stuff going on, but we are looking for people that don't know Jesus. Sure, it's fun to hang out and have our fellowship meals, but how great would it be if the Lord added to our number every single Sunday, not because we want to be a church that grows, but we want to be a church that's part of a kingdom that grows. Put that in your mind. We don't want to be a church that grows. We want to be a church that's part of a kingdom that grows. So our church matters, the church next door matters, the church down the street matters, the church that's buying our church building matters because we are part of a large network of followers of Jesus advancing the kingdom of God here on earth. That's the most important thing that we can do. I don't care, I shouldn't say that fully, I 90% don't care what happens with our numerical growth. I don't. I would love to see us have conversion growth beyond the walls of this place to have people come and know Jesus and Jesus send them somewhere else. Who cares? That should be the motivation. When that becomes the motivation, when that becomes the focus, when we become that gospel-centered church, we are looking for the lost. So we need to create space within our space that's able to receive people easily. We need to create space in our homes that's able to receive people easily. Gospel-centered family coming together on a Sunday as a gospel-centered church is a force multiplier. We exponentially impact the kingdom of God when we work together. There's a phrase that a lot of, um, I don't know, somebody said it. I don't know where. I've heard it in a lot of places, a lot of, a lot of churches, a lot of leadership conferences. Um, as I searched out the, at the phrase and I put it in quotes, I was trying to figure out who said it first so that we could give credit this morning to who said it. And as I was searching, I mean, it's all over. On every church's vision statement has this phrase in it. But it's this. We need to create repeated opportunities for every man, woman, and child to respond to the gospel of Jesus. As a church, we need to create repeated opportunities for every man, woman, and child to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I wish I knew who said that. I would give them a quote and say, this is who said that. And all the churches of the world stole it. <laughs> but do you see how that becomes a motivation and, and a bedrock, a, uh, a, a foundational piece that like drives our activity? We can do all kinds of fun things as a church. And we will. We have a, I think, already we're talking about a great summer of just cool stuff. Family camp and things and 
I'll tell you, we're going to do a vacation Bible school here. Softball, which is not fun for anyone. I'm just kidding. That was softball is a leisure sport. Just, I'm joking, joking. If you can play it at a picnic, it's not a sport. <laughs> I've used that joke for like 20 years since I was nine. <laughs> we can do all kinds of fun stuff. But if our activity and our purposes are driven by creating space for people to have a repeated opportunity to respond to the gospel of Jesus, it, it just puts a sweetness to it and a real purpose and mission. Lost people matter to God. He wants them found. Next week, we're going to talk. We're actually going to spend two weeks in the prodigal son. And then we're going to finish Luke 15. Four weeks in Luke 15. That's exciting, right? We're going to keep marching through these kingdom parables. But I hope, and I'm going to continue to say this every week, is I hope we get a taste for what God is trying to do with the king, it's his kingdom as it's established on earth, and Jesus installs it into his disciples. It's a phrase that's like new to me. I heard somebody talk about installing behavior. I mean, we, we think about installing software. We think about installing hardware. The Spirit of God is trying to install activity and life into us in the, in, to where we reflect the good news of Jesus. Let me pray for us, and then we'll sing together. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your faithfulness, your loving kindness, your graciousness towards us. This morning as a a church family, we look to you and say thank you. Help us Sunday after Sunday, week after week, to orient our ways and our mind and our hearts towards your ways so that we are a gospel-centered church. Lord, I pray for our families in here that they would actively pursue you together in their own household, learning and growing daily, bearing fruit with one another, increasing their faith. Lord, we love you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your ministry to us. In your son's name, amen.